Well, let me give you an update here from the Americas. In the good U.S. of A., we have managed to handle this pandemic fantastically. I don't know if you've seen the news. Uh, <laughs> fantastically can, can be used in many, many different ways. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Human Element Cares podcast on modern marketing. I am joined today by Nate Sharilla, Global Director of Commerce and Voice at iProspect, a Dentsu sister agency in the great city of Tokyo. Nate, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I am jealous. I have not left the house in nine months. So I haven't been anywhere near Asia or Tokyo or any of the places that I love. How is it there? Oh, it's, it's actually been really nice. Tokyo never had any hard lockdowns. People have all been quite civil about things, you know, wearing their masks, social distancing, and it's kept cases quite low uh, throughout. They are rising a bit, but um, nowhere near the levels we're seeing in some other countries, which is definitely a good thing. But yeah, similar to yourself, I haven't been able to travel like normal. So being cooped up in, in one city has been a, a interesting Thing, but uh, yeah, it's it's definitely something that I'm dealing with, and I'm happy to be not in other places. So I am always interested by people's stories, and I would love to hear a bit about yours, sort of your career journey, and then how you got your current role at iPro. So I grew up in Wisconsin. Uh, a very Milwaukee. important electoral state. Very important electoral <laughs> state that makes it quite difficult to vote from overseas. But good thing I had an American witness who was able to sign my ballot as I filled it out and everything else. So yeah, it's it's a, a nice place in, in many ways, but not the most international place you might know. And so I went off to college and was studying some physics as well as music and honestly got quite burned out and was looking for any kind of spark to, to kind of get me back on the track of actually doing my homework and studying. So I joined a volunteer group, ended up in Japan. And so I did some volunteer, for example, after the big tsunami and earthquake that happened and started to kind of pick up Japanese and teach myself. And so once I finally decided to go back to school a couple of years later, then I changed majors a couple times, ended up with Japanese and a bit of business, and then decided, you know, I want to go back to Japan. Uh, it was really nice there. I enjoyed the food, the culture, the people. And so I, I came back as a coordinator for international relations was the official title. That's, that is a handle right there. Right? Yeah, it sounds really nice. But uh, basically, I worked in a city hall and did a, a a lot of English translations, some event planning, et cetera, because where I stayed was just getting the bullet train placed through their city. Sure. So they were expecting, you know, a good influx of international people coming, et cetera. Oh, and so it was a, a good time, but not too much to do with business in the countryside of Japan, not too global either. So then I decided to come to Tokyo, did a small stint of programming. Then I joined a content marketing venture for about a year and a half, did some more translation as well as just creating a lot of content for websites, some videos, some writing articles, all of that kind of fun stuff. 
and thought, you know, it's great to build content in order to, to bring people to your website. But once they're on the website, if they don't do anything, it's kind of a waste. So uh, then I got into analytics and website optimization, kind of taught myself that through various Google trainings and blogs and such. And it turned out really well. And so I decided to kind of move on from the venture and ended up in iProspect Japan. So they hired me in to kind of develop their CRO capabilities in the market. And from there, it's just been kind of like a, a bit of a rocket ship to the top uh, of e-commerce. Did a lot of work on first brand websites. So analyzing you know, the, the analytics, figuring out what's doing well, what can be improved, running various A-B tests, you know, all of that fun stuff to improve performance. And then within about two years, I got invited to the regional team where I became the head of innovation for APAC helped kind of set up similar things in you know, other countries, as well as look at further into e-commerce and really look into voice. Because at that time, we just started to get Google Assist and we just started to get Alexa. And it was getting really, really hot, especially in the region. Sure. So yeah, I spent a good amount of time in those areas and started to get a lot of kind of requests from the European and American teams. And so from last year in January then, I've been working on the global team at iPro as the global director of now commerce invoice. So that's it in a nutshell. I love that. So a few things strike me in that. One is you're a Wisconsinite in Japan, which that feels like a whole other pod series, not just pod episodes. Not many of us. That's yeah. For sure. Okay. All right. Is there any place in Japan you can get Miller High Life? I just want to verify that. There's actually a bar over in Roppongi, not too far from where I am, called Milwaukee. And they've styled it after their image of Milwaukee. And it's not too far off. It's, you know, as close as you're going to get in Japan. But uh, yeah, there actually are a couple places. A couple things. You know, look, obviously the pandemic has been just a whole thing. And I, and I don't want to really bog us down into that at the moment. But, but what I do want to do is, you know, one of the things that, you know, by any expert measure, it has been an acceleration of the importance of commerce in businesses where maybe that has not, for a variety of reasons, been as important or top of mind, or it's been something that has been important and it's just taken it to another level. What has that experience been like for you and for your clients? Yes, yeah, so it's it's been busy. <laughs> That's the, <laughs> the main word to describe it. But as you mentioned Everyone kind of knew that e-commerce in particular was you know, coming, it was important, we needed to invest more in it. But a lot of the legacy brands that have been around for a long time and kind of built their, their brands on the retail shelf hadn't maybe taken enough action to really capitalize on you know, all of the opportunities that e-commerce afforded. So when the pandemic hit and people weren't able to go to physical retail stores anymore, we saw all sorts of behavioral changes. People that had never shopped online were forced to browse Amazon for the first time and forced to enter their shipping information and all of these things. But what we see with that kind of forced experiment is people develop these new habits. So once they're able to get over that initial hump of trying something new, they find out, oh, that wasn't so bad. I actually can shop for groceries 
online. I can buy these things online. Yep. And I am able to, you know, make returns as well if it's, you know, something that I'm not interested in. So, you know, the consumers have really driven, as they usually do, the trends and the businesses have been doing their best to keep up. So we've seen good and bad examples of that. But uh, I think for the most part, every business that I'm talking to is looking to invest much more in e-commerce and make sure that they're ready for everything that the consumer needs. Yeah, because in a lot of categories, right, retail and travel and, you know, even to a lesser extent, banking, this is not new, right? We've been talking about Mm -hmm. this for two decades. But in those places where, whether regionally or in a category, where there's a material amount of disintermediation or high cost barriers or... It was one of those things that just was like, oh, we'll do it next year. We'll do it next year. We'll do it next year. Next year is now here. Mm -hmm. And so I guess my question for you is, how have you tackled that with brands who maybe have not been first adopters, but now find themselves kind of forced into this, this moment? So the biggest thing I do really to help brands is, is kind of break down commerce to its core parts and help them understand, you know, what is it that went into the retail success that you've had and what do you need to be doing to ensure that you have that same kind of success in these different platforms that are online or otherwise. Right. So within iPro and, and across Dentsu in general, uh, we've been developing out something called the Consumer Commerce Success Framework. And so this breaks down the idea of commerce into about five really simple steps. So the first is, is all about like your brand image. We call that desirability. And so how desirable is my brand? Are people actively seeking it out or do they even know about it? Those types of things. That influences you know, everything that the consumer is going to do. But then within that, that's something that you can only really influence. You can't directly make your brand super desirable. You can't flip a switch and all of a sudden everyone loves you. But there are things that you can do that will influence that back. So we have kind of what we call like the inner circle of the commerce success framework. And that's availability, which is being where the consumer is. Findability, which is making sure that you're visible and easily discovered once you're in those right places. You have buyability, which is differentiating from the competition once you get discovered, because we all know there's going to be millions of search results and ads. And then you have repeatability. So once you do get purchased, you want to make sure that you're engaging the consumer and that you're extending beyond the sale. So we use this framework basically to help brands understand, you know, here's areas that we're doing a good job in. Maybe, you know, we are very desirable or maybe we're very findable but we're not findable in the right places. We're not selling on you know, the right platforms. And the biggest thing that, that brands often ask me is, should I be selling on an Amazon, on a, a marketplace, or should I be building my own website and trying to you know, really get that direct-to-consumer advantage? So it's, it's really kind of that strategic approach and then using that as a guiding light for the operational side of what they should be doing. So... Amongst all of that, what are you sort of focused on most at the moment? So right now, I'd say the, the biggest thing is, is that marketplaces versus, you know, direct-to-consumer narrative. Because everyone sees Amazon and Walmart and, you know, Alibaba, et cetera, as these big monoliths that are, you know, coming to eat our lunch for, you know, better or worse. Some people are just deathly afraid of that. 
other people do really understand the potential behind having that direct consumer relationship. So, you know, you get more margin, you get more data and you get more interaction, you get closer to the consumer when you're direct with them. So everyone in a perfect world would be able to go directly. But, you know, when you're selling something like shoe polish, people aren't actively being like, oh man, I can't wait to see that hot new shoe polish drop. I'm going to be waiting in line, you know, to pick that up and can't wait. It's not the most desirable thing. So really finding that balance between kind of commodity as well as luxury and understanding the consumer again, where are they looking for us? Where do they want to be seeing us? Where do they want to meet us uh, is, is really essential. So that's one of the, the biggest focuses I have and helping brands to again, understand what type of brand they are. Are they someone right. that someone's going to, you know, really wait in line for, for the new Yeezys to drop or, you know, the new Jordans, et cetera? Or is it something that is, is more of like a convenience thing? When it's available, they're like, oh yeah, I do need that. And they'll just pick it up. You know, you mentioned a couple of things in that that I think are interesting. I'm going to paraphrase, but this sense of utility versus desire. Are there similarities between those two things when you're thinking about commerce or should they be separated? I think, again, it really comes down to the brand. And I think that there will be different levels. So mm. maybe you can add those two together to 100%. And depending on the brand, you know, maybe like a Nike is going to be 80% desirability and then like 20% utility. Right. But then if you're looking at someone like P&G, for example, that's going to be a lot more utility. You know, when I need a cleaner, for example, I need it now. I need it as soon as possible and I need to be able to find it quickly. So sure. utility is going to be extremely important. Uh, but also, you know, how desirable it is as well. I don't want some knockoff brand that's not going to work. I want to make sure I'm getting the real thing and that it's going to do its job. We talk a lot about trust and authenticity. And it seems to me this is especially important as it relates to commerce. How are you talking to clients about that? One of the things that I really stress with clients is, and especially through the pandemic, has been empathy mm. and really putting themselves in the consumer's shoes and understanding you know, what's happening, what they're going through, and the, the state of mind that people will be in as they're you know, shopping for things. So really prioritizing that human connection. For far too long, I think marketing in general, and especially e-commerce, has been like a one-way street. If you think of like a traditional e-commerce website, it's basically the equivalent of handing someone a catalog and saying, here you go, you know, find what you need. Right. Self-directed, just go yeah. pick it. Yeah. Yeah, go find it yourself. And if you were to go, you know, to downtown Tokyo, walk into, you know, a nice store and the clerk comes up and just gives you, you know, this, <laughs> this catalog and says, here you go, find what you need. <laughs> you're like, what kind of shitty experience is this? You know, you'd be very upset. <laughs> and that's, that's not what people want. People want to know that they're being heard. They want to know that they're being taken care of. And so that is, is something that's very important. And especially now with all of the different data sources that are available in the new technologies, such as voice and chat and live streaming, we can have that interactive exchange now. It doesn't just have to be like a banner ad saying, hey, look, here's one product, one USP. Are you interested? No, sorry. You can say, you know, what are you looking for today? How can I help you? 
they sure. can respond and then you can iterate back and get deeper into what they're actually looking for. And so if you do that right, you're able to introduce, you know, anything from your entire lineup of products and, you know, USPs and really help the user. And people, they like to be heard. No one likes to be just yelled at uh, and have no say in the matter. But if you're able to have that dialogue, you're able to solve a lot of problems. You're able to get to the, the heart of the issue. And, and everyone has a better experience at the end of the day. Obviously, half of your job title is voice. You know, I think that means a lot of things to a lot of people. How would you define the importance of voice and voice interaction right now? Yeah, voice can mean different things in different markets. And everyone kind of has a, a bit of a different interpretation at the moment. But the main things I categorize as voice would be, for example, digital assistants such as Alexa, Siri, Google Assistant. Also chat, whether that's voice chat or typed out, would consider that voice as well as live streaming because it includes chat as well. Mm. Within that, you know, you have things like voice search, you have things like voice shopping, you have voice applications, but they're all kind of subsets of basically digital assistants or chat or, or kind of live streaming. So those are, are typically the areas that I think of when it comes to voice. You know, when, you, when you're talking to clients, what are some of the more interesting things they're looking to do in that space? One of the things I've been talking about with clients a lot recently is just how effective voice and in particular chatbots can be to tie everything together. Chatbots are very easy to basically access. You can use a QR code, you can use an embedded link, you can even embed them within you know, Google Display Network, banner ads. We did a, a pod for next week and it was a silly US-based Thanksgiving pod and we asked somebody what they were thankful for and she said, well, I'm super thankful because 2020 is the year of the QR code. <laughs> <laughs> and it made, and she, she was making a joke, but she was being serious. Is that true? I think for America, maybe. <laughs> okay. Not so much around the world. I mean, outside of America, QR codes have been around for right, a good amount right. of so time. Right, right. So we've, we've suppressed yeah. the utility, and now here we are in our desperate moment, and we've finally awoken, is what you're suggesting. Exactly. America's right. finally catching up with the rest Perfect. of the world. Perfect. I'm sorry, Nate, for interrupting. <laughs> no, no problems. But yeah, so basically being able to kind of start up these chatbots through all these different mediums. I mean, you could have a QR code in a magazine. You could have it on a billboard. You could put it in a TV ad um, anywhere, basically. And when you scan that or when you click that link, it can take you to this chatbot. And so with that chatbot, you can house and connect in all of your different data sources across all of your different channels. And so it can remember things like, oh, hey, you know, welcome back. Thanks for purchasing whatever before. Are you interested in this other thing that's similar? Can we help you with, with something else? And so this type of shoppable media, really shortening that consumer journey of discovery mm -hmm. through consideration to, to purchase, et cetera, can be drastically accelerated. And we are seeing some really interesting things like in the US, there's the NBC Universal Checkout. So on NBC, they'll have QR codes pop up on screen now and then when you know they're talking about a product or there's some interesting within like a scene of a drama that you can purchase. Right. And so it'll you know take you to the the checkout page or to the a chatbot that can talk about it. Really all of those things kind of combining together 
is making voice and making this, again, interactive opportunity very, very enticing for a lot of brands. When you get a brief, and this is a crazy question, so I apologize, Nate, but when you get a brief, how do you make sure that there's some balance, and maybe clients don't care, but some balance between building a brand and driving toward a transaction, does that matter? Or is that discussion being had? It's a very important thing that I think our organization to some extent has been a bit siloed in that perspective, as well as the client's organization. What I typically do, again, coming back to that kind of commerce success framework, is you see like desirability again, and this is kind of like that long-term branding and really that emotional side of marketing. But that impacts everything. Even if you're in the right places, you're easy to find, you got a great price. If I've never heard of your brand or I've had a terrible experience, I'm not going to buy it. You know, it's not desirable. It's not going to perform. But if, you know, I'm the best brand ever and everyone's you know, very interested in me, but I'm out of stock or, you know, I can't be found at all, no matter how much I search, people aren't going to be able to make that purchase. And so everything is, is really linked together. So really helping brands to understand that, you know, it's not just the now. We have to be building things long term. We have to become more desirable, but we also have to make sure that we're doing the right things today that will lead to that, that also lead to kind of the short-term health of our brand as well. Um, I think that's really well said. What's the one thing that people in our industry aren't talking about right now that they should be? You know, there's a lot of talk about e-commerce, which is good. That's the, the right thing to be talking about. But I do think that there's not enough talk going on about voice and, and those opportunities. Because whenever I do talk with brands, because I, I kind of bring you know both to the table talking about commerce and voice, everyone's very focused on commerce. They're focused on building you know their platforms and, and selling on Amazon, et cetera. But they're not focused, again, on that exchange with the consumer, with really understanding and listening and all of those opportunities that come with that. So, you know, one of the things that I talk about with a lot of like FMCG brands and others is is utilizing that shoppable media, making sure that it's not just the platforms that are shoppable, but I can find, you know, a TV ad, I can find a banner ad on, you know, Facebook or something, and I can just complete the purchase seamlessly there. Being able to, again, reach out to the consumer, meet them where they are, is, is really making their lives easier. With my background in conversion rate optimization, we know the longer the journey to conversion, the more steps there are, the more friction there is, the more people are going to drop out, the more frustrated they're going to get. So it's, it's really about putting the consumer first and doing everything you can to make their lives easier. What are the couple things over the next, I don't know, 12, 18, 24 months that we should be looking out for as marketers? I think... You know, the most immediate ones are going to be just making sure that e-commerce is is solid. Too many brands found out that they weren't in, you know, the right place to be able to meet all of the demands that came online. And so we had supply chains getting disrupted. People weren't able to, you know, quickly adapt to the situation. And maybe a certain country where they were manufacturing wasn't able to produce and they didn't have a backup plan. So they were stuck, you know up the river without a paddle. 
And so making sure that, that all of these things are in place as well as somewhat malleable to be able to deal with you know, the global kind of economy that we're in. Uh, you can't be overly reliant on one channel, on one you know, supplier. Uh, you have to be able to kind of flow with the flow of the consumer river, if you want to use a weird metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's kind of the, the more immediate side of things. If you, you sort of step back and think about what you've done over the past, I don't know, three or four years, what's the thing that keeps you going in that? I think the thing that keeps me going is just all of the opportunities that are still out there. You know, a lot's been done in the last three to four years, and there's so much more kind of potential that's, that's getting unlocked every day. And so one of the things that's interesting about, you know, being within an agency is there's so many opportunities with so many different clients and in different countries, different technologies and partners that you can really bring together so many different worlds and create something new and something very compelling. So being able to do that so far, the kind of the fast-paced life of agency has been very interesting. And I think as technology continues to evolve, the experiences that you know brands and consumers have together will continue to evolve as well. And so watching that unfold and being able to play a part in that is something that's, that's very exciting and something that's uh, very rewarding. So are you ready for the lightning round? Okay, yes. <laughs> you sound worried. Oh, no, I'm, I'm always ready. All right, okay. <laughs> so in theory, this is short answers to short questions. We've proven that not to be the case. Favorite digital experience? Favorite digital experience would probably be here in Tokyo. There's a really cool place called Team Lab. Not the coolest name, but the coolest place. And so Epson, uh, you know, like the printer and projector company. Oh, sure, it. yeah. And so what they've done is a bunch of really interesting, like digitally mapped exhibits. So there's like 50 exhibits in one of them. Oh. And they use all sorts of projection as well as kind of recognition technology. So they know where people are and these digital displays will you know, change and evolve as you touch them. And it's very immersive. If anyone's ever in Tokyo uh, in the near term, you know, check out Team Lab. Uh, there's some really interesting experiences. Google Assistant, Alexa, or Siri? I uh, can't answer that due to my uh, <laughs> partnerships. But, uh, I love it. I love that I, we, it's taken us 30 <laughs> minutes, Nate, but we've got you yeah. on the run now. Yeah. I will say that I'm wearing a, a shirt right now that has Google Assistant on the sleeve from when I developed some apps for Google Assistant. So, so is that a tip of the cap or that's just a you know good fortune of your wardrobe? Uh, I don't know. It's a very comfortable shirt. <laughs> And Google Assistant does a good job at understanding Japanese and English at the same time, which is also quite useful in this country. So, I feel like we're causing controversy. You, you may have a voice from the Midwest, but I, I feel like we've really <laughs> upended things. Yeah. Best piece of content recently consumed? Podcast, movie, book, anything? Um, I'm reading a book right now that's very, very interesting called Prosperity by someone named Colin Mayer. He's some professor at Oxford or something, but uh, he talks about businesses and how messed up they are right now. Mm -hmm. How everything's all about just, you know, making more money, increasing shareholder value, and how that's not going to end up well. That's not going to, you know, lead to businesses, you know, helping the world. 
And so he talks about how businesses should focus on their purpose and that if you do that, everyone will kind of end up in the right place. That's very interesting and, and something I think we've really lost sight of in, in a lot of countries around the world. It's interesting. I haven't read the book, but I, look, there is no doubt in the past 35, 40 years, we've lost our way from a corporate mission perspective. And there's a lot of, you know, I don't need to call everybody out on this, you know, Wall Street, <laughs> private equity, venture capital. But, you know, we, we've wound up in a situation where I think there's a lot of confusion over what we're in service of. And, you know, the, the best of what companies can do when they're really working is they're in service of, of their target audience and their employees and, and the betterment of, of their situations. I, it's not always clear, certainly over the past 10 or 15 years, I think that's gotten cloudy. So I think you're, I think you're on to something there. This is the part of the pod where I pontificate. Are you enjoying this, Nate? I am enjoying it. Okay, I, I definitely agree. <laughs> Best piece of career advice given or received? I would say to make sure that someone always has your back, that someone you know above you or someone with the, the right influence is looking out for you. And I think especially during the pandemic, we've seen that that can be very important with all of the kind of job cuts and all of the, the things going on. But yeah, make sure that you do have, you know, friends in high places that can help you when you need it. A little bit of Garth Brooks there. <laughs> not too familiar. <laughs> Wisconsin, not as much country music as maybe some other states. <laughs> okay. I, I sort of feel like Wisconsin's got a little country action, but maybe There's I'm wrong. Some. Thing people should know about you, but they don't. Well, I, I live in Japan, but I'm six foot five. Oof. So it doesn't come through when we're on video calls. <laughs> so if you if you have any good ideas for, for pants and shoemakers that ship to Japan, let me know. So I, I'm going to keep you here just for one second, Nate. So obviously Japan is a, you know, it is not the tallest country on earth. I don't think that's pejorative. And I say that as a person who's five foot four, by the way, I'm, I'm a big fan of the littles. When you walk down the street, do you feel like everybody's kind of looking at you? Uh, not as much in Tokyo as outside okay. of Tokyo. Within Tokyo, there's, you know, there's a decent amount of, of people from, from other countries. But even then, I'd say once, maybe twice a year, I see someone taller than me here. <laughs> Whereas when I, you know, go to Norway on a business trip, it's, you know, four or five people every day. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely, yeah, I get lots of, of kind of looks, but, you know, you get used to it and kind of desensitize. So. Nate, thank you so much. You have been a magnificent guest. You've brought us a lot of great information. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of The Human Element. Remember, you can find us anywhere you find your pods. Give us a like, a comment, or smash that button, Jace. <laughs> there was a fist up. He's not going to say anything because he's going to leave me hanging. In the meantime, remember, please be well, be just, stay safe, and we'll be back out to you real soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>